You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. Our Advent series this year is entitled God Revealed. In these four sermons, as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we are studying key stories from the Old Testament where God shows up and reveals himself to his people. Today we have the privilege to hear uh, from Pastor Rob Plummer preach this morning. Uh, Rob has been a, a pastor here at Sojourn for over 15 years and is a real gift to our church. And so as we welcome him to the pulpit to continue our Advent series, uh, would you join me in today's scripture reading from Exodus 3 and Exodus 6? If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Right. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's a joy to be with you this second week of Advent. And in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety we may see throughout daily life in the midst of a global pandemic, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a comfort and a grace to fall back into the church calendar and to remember the longing we have for the Messiah, for his coming, and then the joy and celebration of his coming. Let me begin with a word of prayer for us. Heavenly Father, we do ask you to bless this time that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. We pray your Holy Spirit will bring conviction of sin, bring repentance. We pray you would direct the gaze of our hearts and minds to the sufficiency and beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a little bit of an analogy. I know that virtually none of us are traveling right now, except perhaps to Kroger and Costco, but if you could imagine for a moment that we could travel internationally, we could go to Nepal, and we're in Kathmandu, and we charter a little plane, and we decide to fly over the Himalayas to see the Himalayas, and as we're gaining altitude, we begin to see these beautiful uh, rocky crags, these majestic peaks rising out, uh, rising from the plain and then getting higher and higher and higher, snow covered until finally we, we top the highest one, Mount Everest, at over 29,000 feet. And this is just a short little metaphor, a little analogy for the way that God has revealed who he is and what he's doing in scripture. Because when we read through scripture, which is a record of what God has done and how he has revealed himself in history, we see these, this progressive revelation, this escalation of truths about who God is and what he is doing in the world. For example, we could look at virtually any theme in scripture in this way. 
For example, we could think about the gospel going to all nations. When you look in the Old Testament, it's clear that the Israelites are God's specially chosen people. And yet there are these little echoes, these little, these little glimmers that the gospel is not just for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for all nations of the world. God tells Abraham, through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. Jonah is sent as a missionary to the Ninevites. We read in the Psalms and in Isaiah these celebrations about how in the last days the Gentiles will come in to be with God's people. But how is this going to happen? And then we come to the New Testament and we see that, that Jesus, through his perfect life and atoning death, Jew and Gentile are all welcomed and right, made righteous, declared righteous in God's sight. And then Jesus, when he sends out his apostles, he says, go make disciples of all nations. And the theme we're going to look at today, though, is not the going of the gospel to all nations, but God's name, God's name. And we see in scripture that God progressively reveals his name, climaxing at the coming, coming of Jesus Christ. That's the Mount Everest. The Mount Everest to the revelation of God's name is the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I have to warn you that the beginning part of the sermon, there, there are a few parts of it that are a little more academic than I usually like to be preaching. But if you'll stay with me, I think that the fruit of what we're learning is going to be very nourishing for your soul. And, and it, so just, just stay with me if a couple parts of it are a little more academic. And uh, I think at the beginning, it's, it's good for us just to honestly admit that it, it seems a little bit strange if we step back from it. To, to speak of God having a name, right? Think about that, God having a name. But that is, in fact, the terminology that God himself uses in the text we're looking at. Now, we didn't read the whole passage uh, because of limited time, but this is the famous story, you know, of, of God appearing to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses has fled Egypt 40 years ago. He's been shepherding in Midian, shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And God calls to Moses. God, Moses sees the burning bush. He goes, God speaks to Moses. He commissions him. God reveals himself and he commissions Moses to lead his people out of Israel. And I want us to look specifically, begin by looking at 6.3, Exodus 6.3. God says to, to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord... I did not make myself known to them by my name, the Lord. And you know, if you continue reading through the Bible, you, in Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments, what's the third commandment? The third commandment is do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or we come to the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples the model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer. It begins by saying, our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. It's, again, it's, it's something maybe many of us have read our whole lives, but just to step back and see, the Bible speaks about God having a name, and that, that may surprise us, and we may not really fully understand that. And I think the first step in understanding it is understanding that modern American culture and names is very different from the biblical time, from the biblical culture. Uh, most people in modern America, this may be different if you're from another country or culture, but most people in modern America don't even know the meaning of their names. Their na we have names because our parents liked the way they sounded or they're the name of a grandparent. But biblically, the name of someone in the Bible, when we see names are significant, biblically the name of someone reveals their true identity and their fundamental activity. 
Biblically, the name of someone reveals their true identity and their fundamental activity. For example, beginning of Genesis, where the first man, Adam. In Hebrew, that means ground, right? Groundling. Here is someone who's made from the ground, who's made from the dust of the earth, and God has breathed life into him. When the woman is brought to the man, he says, you shall be called woman, for out of man you were taken. And thankfully, the wordplay works in both English and the original Hebrew, because in Hebrew, he says, you shall be called Isha, because you were taken out of Ish. So we see that name, Isha, is, is very similar, isn't it? It's, it's of like kind to Ish, but there's also some difference. It's a meaningful name. When God calls Abra- Abraham, he is first Abram, exalted father. But then when God gives him the promise, you will be the father of many nations. Through you all, all nations of the world will be blessed. He changes his name to Abraham which means father of many. So we see that biblically, the name of someone really reveals their true identity and their fundamental activity. And we see in Scripture that God has a name, and his name is a meaningful name. Again, the passage we looked at in Exodus 6.3, if we could put it back up there, you can see God says, I appeared, speaking to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord I did not make myself known to them. And you can see both God and Lord are underlined there. And I want to talk about those because those are two different words to refer to, to God. The first one is the word El or Elohim, the word that's translated here, God. It occurs about 2,600 times in the New Testament. And this is very similar to the English word God. So if we had up here, let's say we had a a Mormon, we had a Jehovah's Witness, we have a a Muslim, we have a Hindu, we have a born-again Christian, we could say, do you believe in God? And they would all nod yes, because basically they're they're not saying they believe in the same God, but they believe in a deity. So this this term Elohim is used, the nations worship their Elohim, and Israel has their Elohim, and sometimes it has other qualifiers, like here it has the word Shaddai, God Almighty, clarifying this is the true true God, not just one of the Elohim of the nations. But, but, so it's essentially equivalent to the word deity. And then we have the word that's in all caps on this verse. If we could have it back up there, get Exodus 6, 3, the word Lord. It's in all caps. And um, in Hebrew, it's actually four letters. It sometimes is called the tetragrammaton, which means the four letter, the four letter word. It's, it's the divine name. It occurs 6,800 times in the Old Testament. You think about that. The word Elohim or El, just 2,800 times. This is over 6,000 times, 6,800 times. And, and you may know some, some pious Jews who refuse to say this name, but if you, if you look in the Old Testament, it doesn't forbid saying God's name. It forbids taking God's name in vain. Uh, most scholars, there's some debate about how it, how it was originally pronounced, because around the 2nd or 3rd century BC, Jews stopped saying the name, but most modern scholars agree that it's pronounced like Yahweh. And we can compare this with, if you look at the ancient nations surrounding Israel, you could go to the Babylonians and say, what is the name of your God? And they would say that our God's name, the name of our Elohim is Marduk. You go to the Egyptians, you say, what is the name of your God? They might have to pull out a little crib sheet because they have so many. They say, well, we've got Ra, we've got Osiris, we have Horus, we have Ice, we have all these names for our gods. And the God of ancient Israel, the true and living God, has revealed his name in scripture as Yahweh. And Yahweh in the scripture is very clear. 
It says that Yahweh created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, <laughs> and rules over them all. And if you listen to that carefully, you see that doesn't really leave any, any area for other <laughs> deities, right? The other deities of these nations, the claims they have to sovereignty or other, are, are false claims. They're pretender gods, because the only true and living God is the God who's revealed himself to ancient Israel and who's chosen Abraham uh, to fulfill his promises. Now, some of you in here, I'm guessing, probably some of you, what I've said is really not new to you. You knew this, but a few of you are like, why have I never seen this before? Why have I never seen the name Yahweh in the Bible? Well, most modern Bibles have the name Yahweh translated like this as Lord, but you notice it's Lord with all capital letters to indicate that. You say, well, why is that? There's a long tradition of that that goes back to the second or third century BC when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And they chose, rather than to phonetically render the divine name, to render it with Greek letters, the sounds, they chose to translate it as kurios or Lord. And so we continue that tradition as well. I think, I think it's fine to do it that way. There are um, a few Bibles that do render the name phonetically in modern English. One of them is uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible before it was revised. Every time of those 6,800 times, they rendered the divine name as Yahweh. And it's, it's a little bit different experience, actually, reading through the Old Testament when you see how frequently God designates himself with this, with this unique and meaningful name. When I was in my office this morning, I saw I had a couple extra Holman Christian Standard Bibles before they were revised to change that. So I stuck one over here. So if you want it, you can have it. And you can read through the Old Testament. It's next to the hand sanitizer. You can read through the Old Testament and see what that's like. And for example, here's a verse I just picked out of it. Jonah 1.9. This is Jonah speaking to the other sailors. They're saying, why is this happening? Why is this storm happening? He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. A few of you may be familiar from, know the King James tradition. You may know the name Jehovah. This is also an attempt to render the divine name, but you say, well, why is it so different? It's, it's because of the influence of Latin, the way they pronounced it, and it's also, it seems to be a misunderstanding of the Jewish vowel pointing. Final, we're almost done with the academic portion. One of the benefits of mask when you're teaching is you can't tell uh, if people are bored as easily, right? Because their, their yawns are stifled underneath the... Yeah. So I, I can't really... You know, it's dangerous too because I could just keep going on. But we do, have, we do have a brief visual aid before we get to a little more practical. And uh, I have from a 2,000-year-old manuscript down at the bottom. This is from the Dead Sea Scrolls 2,000 years ago. You can see that at the bottom circled. It's maybe hard to tell, but it's four letters, the Tetragrammaton, the Divine the divine name, the same way it's written in Hebrew block letters today as it was written uh, 2,000 years ago. The next slide, however, is also from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the things we find, it's fa- I think it's absolutely fascinating, is uh, when I was in Israel years ago looking at one of these scrolls in the shrine of the book, you, you see, if you know Hebrew, you see a lot of letters you're familiar with, and then you see letters that are completely un- you're unfamiliar with, that, that are not the Hebrew block script. And that's the divine name. They're, they're so reverent and conservative towards God's divine name, they're writing it in the way the script was written hundreds of years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, what's sometimes called Paleo-Hebrew or Phoenician script. They're, they're conserving and reverencing the divine name. What does this name mean, if names are meaningful? What does this name mean? Well, in the PowerPoint, you can see side by side the name Yahweh, and then you can see 
then you can see the verb to be. And I don't, even if you, I phonetically rendered them in English as well. Even if you don't know Hebrew, you can see three of the letters are the same in the divine name and then in the verb to be. And most scholars agree that God's name is really essentially like saying he is. <laughs> he is. He exists. And you, if you think about that, he is the only one who can, we can say that about in the world. Because each one of us here, there was a time not that long ago when none of us existed. But God, if you go back a hundred billion years, if you go back a hundred trillion years, he is. <laughs> and he is the same in his power, his authority, his nature, his character. He is now. He, he will be. You take a tr- hundred trillion years, a hundred trillion times a hundred trillion years, he will be unchanged. He is. Now, it seems that, so there's this linguistic relationship between the verb to be in Hebrew and the revelation of God's divine name, the tetragrammaton, the, the, the name Yahweh. And we see God himself alludes to this in Exodus 3.14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And, and as I was studying this, I mean, I've, we've all, most of us in here have heard this passage many times. I, I, uh, I you know, it's, it's very familiar to me, but, but I was challenged by, by some commentaries and footnotes. If you, most modern Bibles at this point have a footnote, the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, they have a footnote and it says, or it could be translated, I will be who I will be. And I have to admit, Initially, I was discounting that. I was like, where's that coming from? What, where, how is that? But the more I studied it, the more I thought, wow, this, there's, there's something to this. And I'll, I want to take you on that journey. In Exodus 3.11, uh, God is speaking to Moses, and, and, um, and Moses is replying to him. Moses here says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I will be with you. And in the Hebrew, that's ayah. I will be. It says, there will be a sign to you that it's I who sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. And then God continues and he says, I will be a yeah, who I will be a yeah. This is what you are to say to the Israel. It's I will be a yeah, has sent me to you. In other words, all four of those instances of the verb, which could be translated, Hebrew's a little strange, could be translated as a present or a future. They're all the same. They're all the same verb, exactly the same. And the first one, God says, I will be with you, Moses, right? I will be with you. I will be with the Israelites. I will, my presence will be with you, and I'm there to keep my promises. I'm there to save you. And if you look at that context, again, just right next to each other, it would seem to point towards understanding them in the same way. And I think it's fitting. Think about this. When God chooses to exposit on his name, when God chooses to elaborate on his name in light of the connection to the the verb to be. He doesn't speak about his ongoing eternal existence. He doesn't speak abstractly about philosophical things of self-sufficiency or so on. But God speaks about his personal presence to save and protect and fulfill his promises, right? God says to Moses and to the Israelites, my people are in need. If we read the context of Exodus 3 through 6, my people are suffering, my people are helpless, my people need rescue and forgiveness. I have heard them, and I will be there. I will be there for them. 
When God gives commentary on his name, he, divine, he defines himself by being with and for his people, by being with and for his people. There's an Old Testament scholar who I think captured this very nicely. His name is Ronald Youngblood. He's passed away now. But I found this was the best paragraph I could find that just synthesizes the meaning of God's name. So I want to read this slowly to us. It says, The name Yahweh is a perpetual testimony to God's faithfulness to his promises. Thus, in its usage, it conveys the thought that God is ever-present with his people to save, help, deliver, redeem, bless, and keep covenant. God's active existence and presence are primarily in view, not his mere state of being or passive presence. He is the God who personally reveals himself in authoritative word and mighty act. I want to challenge you as you read the Old Testament now, rather than just skimming over when you see Lord in all caps, I want you to think about the divine name and, and, and the meaning of God's name and what is conveyed in the usage of that name. And as amazing as that is in this passage, think about God speaking to Moses, revealing his name, speaking about the meaning of his name. This is just one of the majestic peaks as we're approaching uh, Mount Everest in the revelation of God's name, right? We're just, this is just halfway up the climb as we're climbing up. And when we get to the top, when we get to the Mount Everest of God's revelation of his name, it's in the coming of his son. And in John eight fifty eight, in the midst of Jesus' public ministry, as he's teaching in the temple one day, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this language is a, I would say, is an unambiguous echo of God's self-identification in Exodus 3. And Jesus' contemporaries, those that were hostile to him, they certainly understood it because the next verse, the very next verse, it says, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, right? Because Jesus really doesn't leave any middle ground. As C.S. Lewis famously said, he, you, either, you either bow before him and recognize him as Lord or you reject him as a liar or a lunatic. He doesn't, he doesn't give you a middle ground that you can stand in. I do think it's noteworthy, though, in the Gospel of John, as Jesus continues to exposit, what does it mean that he is I am before Abraham? What does it mean that he is the word who became flesh? What does it mean that Jesus is God with us? What does it mean that he's the second person of the triune God who's incarnate? What does, it, what does this mean? He doesn't, again, he doesn't speak about abstract philosophical concepts and timelessness and all this, he, he speaks about being with and for his people. And seven times, John is very organized in the way he writes his gospel. There's seven signs. There's seven I am saints. Seven times, Jesus gives a brief commentary on what it means that God is with and for his people. I'd like us to look at these briefly. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? All other Attempts to find meaning and purpose in life will leave us spiritually hungry. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right? It's a very dark world. It's a dark world stained by sin and sadness. But in Jesus, the light of God's goodness and holiness shines forth, and he allows us to see the path to walk as his disciples. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep 
right? We want to be part of God's flock, to be cared by him, to, be part of, to have him as our shepherd. Jesus is the door by which we enter into God's flock. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Right? Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. All other leaders, all other claims to shepherd will fail us. Politicians will fail us. Teachers will fail us. Pastors will fail us. Parents will fail us. Community groups will fail us. Spouses will fail us. But Jesus is the shepherd who will never fail us. His rod and his staff comfort us. He makes us lie down in the green pastures of his presence. He leads us beside the still waters. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the true vine. We are the branches and he is the vine and we must stay connected with him. We must remain in him to have life and fruitfulness. Now, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, pious Jews from back as early as the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. began to not say the divine name out of reverence and out of fear of breaking the third commandment. And instead of saying the divine name, they would say, when they would see that word, and they were reading the, the Bible, reading the scripture in synagogue or whatever, they would say Adonai rather than Yahweh, meaning Lord. Or in modern times, they will say uh, usually Hashem, the name. Yet, Jews, and even we today, maybe you didn't realize this, you continue to say the divine name in many of the Hebrew names that, that capture it, that freeze it in their meaning. For example, the name Jonathan in Hebrew is Yanatan, which literally is Yahweh gives. Yahweh has given. The meaning Jonathan is Yahweh has given. The name Jesus in Aramaic, Yeshua. Yeah, from shortened form of Yahweh, Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And Matthew 1, here we're making it back around to the Christmas story, the second week of Advent. We have to read from the Gospels, don't we? Right, the second week of Advent, we read a well-known part of the Christmas story. Joseph has found out that Mary is pregnant, and it says that he's a righteous man and has plans to not expose her to public disgrace, but to put her away privately. And it says, we read in Matthew one twenty. but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, right? Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation, because he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. We see as God progressively revealed more and more about his name over the history of salvation as recorded in scripture, it's, it's not a different name. It's not that he's a different God. It's that there are depths to the meaning of his name where he makes more and more clear what does it mean that God is with us and God is for us, that God is with us and God is for us. In Exodus 3, uh, we see that God is with and for his people by keeping his promises to, to Abraham to rescue them, to rescue Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. And in that tenth and climactic plague 
the, the death of the firstborn son, God's holy judgment overshadows Egypt, right? And, but God provides a way out for his people. He says, take a lamb, and I want you to kill the lamb and take the blood, each household, and put the blood of the lamb on the sides of the door frames and over the lentil. Because as we read elsewhere in Scripture, there is, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, About 2,000 years before this, about 4,000 years ago, um, Abraham had been given a promise. He'd been given, finally been given the son uh, that he had been told of, Isaac. But then he, he was tested by God and said, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love. I want you to go to this region. It's the mountains outside of the city of David, modern day, what we know as Jerusalem. And I want you to take your son and sacrifice him on that mountain. And as they were going up the mountain, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, you know, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, father? And Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. And historically, we know that God did provide a lamb. An angel of the Lord spoke to him. There was a ram caught in the thicket, and Abraham was instructed to kill this, kill this ram. Don't, don't sacrifice your son. And 2,000 years after that, 2,000 years back from where we live, we have on a mountain outside of Jerusalem, we have God's son, his only son, his son whom he loves, right? who um, willingly laid down his life as the only possible sacrifice, the only acceptable and final sacrifice to make us acceptable to God. So here's, here's this climactic moment, this Mount Everest, where we see God's holiness demands something that we can't give, but God himself provides that in the sending of his son and in his death. God is with us and for us in Christ in a, in a, in a way that, that is so deep and so high that we can never grasp, uh, grasp the ends of it. We do remember it each week, though, don't we, when we take communion, what we do now. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Sojourn East, whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns um, we, because of uh, health issues with the pandemic, we're not taking communion in the normal way, but there's uh, communion that you can get out here in little baggies that has little wafers and grape juice. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, we invite you to take communion now, to take communion um, during the prayer time or during the, uh, during the music time to reflect upon the meaning of the Lord's death and how in Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, God is for you and God is with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.